Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Well, Father, we, we bring a lot before you. We've had great weeks. We've had bad weeks. We've had everything in between. We have a lot on our minds. We um, are trying to figure out what we're going to do this afternoon. We have nothing on our minds, God. Uh, with a group this large, uh, we come in here from all over. And so we just uh, pray that you would enter in, that you would meet with us where we are, whether we are close to you or whether we feel far from you, that your spirit um, would meet us and that you would change us and that uh, because we believe your word is living and active, that you would use it to impact us uh, for your glory and for our good and for the good of this world, that we would become people that love you and love others more. God, I pray that for these next few minutes, um, that you would use this time, that you would uh, use me to be helpful, um, and that you would, again, just meet us wherever we are so we leave here changed. All these things we, we, we pray, uh, we love you, and we trust you. Amen. Uh, so you may have had an experience like this, where you get to know somebody and there's something that person does, something that person enjoys, which makes zero sense to you. Like you see it, like I see what you're doing, why would you ever want to do that voluntarily? Uh, anyone have that experience? The thing that came to mind as I was kind of processing this week, I was like, when have I had that? Uh, my wife, as we got married, she moved from an apartment into the house that I had, uh, and I found out pretty quick that she loves and enjoys like yard work and gardening, which she enjoys. For me, I'm pretty sure that's in like the Geneva Convention somewhere. Like that's a punishment akin to torture. I will have no desire to do that. But again, for her, she enjoys it. So I was like, well, why is this something that you enjoy? And as we got to know each other more through marriage and, and just kind of that relationship develops and you, you get deeper and deeper knowledges of kind of who that person is, you know, I learned that she enjoys kind of the, the task-oriented achievement, which, you know, yard work is that. You go and you pull up weeds in your flower bed and you see this is immediate difference. Like, this is much better than it was when I started two hours ago. She enjoys kind of cultivating and growing things, so over time, the plants grow and flourish, and I was like, okay, I, I see that, but there are other ways that you can kind of scratch that itch that's not awful like yard work is to me, um, and then you get more and more, kind of get to know her, and it finally clicked for me uh, one time when she's kind of talking about how she grew up, and one of her fond memories as a kid were days that her and her brother and her dad spent out in the yard working on that, tending, uh, they had a, a big flower bed, kind of wildflowers and things in the garden. And so for her, yard work kind of connects her back to fond memories of childhood. And so when I, I learned that, I go, okay, that makes sense to me. Like, I still don't want to do yard work. I mean, I will if I have to. Uh, I'm more than happy for you to do it, but I understand why you would like to do that. And I think, uh, or, or it can be just kind of like, more like, why do you care about something like that? Like one of our defining uh, kind of, I think, characteristics as a church family, as us as a group, is we are heavily involved in foster care and adoption. And if you, somebody from the outside came in and kind of just observed us for a moment, it would be a uh, natural question for them to go, hey, why does your church, why do so many people in your church uh, care about this? Not only as foster parents, but also people around them that say, hey, I can't be a foster parent myself, but I can help support and uh, encourage and, and be a part of your, uh, somebody else's journey as a foster parent. I can be a part of that. Why, why would you care about that? It's a huge sacrifice. Why would you guys be so involved in adoption? And I think if 
many of you were to be asked that question by somebody who is new to the church, you would respond with something along the lines of, well, as a Christian, as a believer, uh, I think that God came into my life when I was fatherless, when I was an orphan, when I was helpless, when I was vulnerable, and rescued me and adopted me into his family. And so now, as a person who tries to follow God, I want to be involved in doing that. And one of the ways that I can, one of the ways we can, is to step into something like foster care, where children are uh, vulnerable and helpless and in really uh, difficult situations, and open our homes and invite them in. And if we express that, you know, a person may go, well, I still don't, I'm not going to be involved in foster care, but I, that reason makes sense. It's the kind of puzzle piece that they can see and, and brings into focus why uh, we would be about something like that. I, I would imagine most of us have similar experiences with somebody in our life where something didn't make sense, but as we got to know that person and understand their motivations and understand their background, something clicked at one point that we understood their heart behind it. And why I bring that up um, is because we're going to be in Luke 15 this morning, so you can go ahead and turn there. But I think um, there's a lot going on in Luke 15. But one of the things I think it does is it acts in such a way uh, to do that for us, that here Jesus is telling a series of parables. We're only going to focus on one of them. But he's telling these parables to give us that piece of information about God's heart, about God's motivation, about his character that helps us understand who he is and why he is about the things that he is about. It's not the only place in Scripture that we get kind of a, a clear view at the heart of God, but I think it's as clear as any that Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain and says, let me tell you about your heavenly Father. Uh, we'll start here in a second in verse 11. Um, but just to provide a little bit of context of, of how we situate this, um, I think I said this is going to go. The, this chapter is three parables that Jesus teaches in rapid succession. He, he starts and he just kind of goes boom, boom, boom. Uh, the first one, or the first two actually, Trent preached on um, two, three weeks ago. So just as a, of a reminder, if you've slept a few times since then, or if you weren't here this week, uh, the first parable Jesus teaches in this chapter is the parable of the lost sheep. And he says, a man has a hundred sheep and one's missing and he leaves the 99 and he goes and he finds the one and he brings that back. And when he, he finds the sheep, he celebrates and invites those he knows to celebrate with him. And then he, he immediately launches into the second parable. He says, a woman has 10 coins and she's missing one. And so she tears her uh, house apart to find it. And once she does find this coin, she invites her neighbors and her friends to come and to celebrate alongside her. So that's kind of this uh, main idea that Jesus is teaching through these two parables is that God, who's kind of represented in these two parables by the shepherd and by the woman, uh, God has a seeking and a searching heart. God goes looking for what is lost. And once he finds that, he celebrates. Um, he invites others to celebrate alongside him. And the second piece of context that's crucial to understanding what Jesus is talking about in this third parable that we're going to get to is who he's actually speaking to, which we find in Luke uh, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, which I think's up there. Yeah, and again, uh, you didn't know that church this morning was going to double as like your optometrist appointment. Um, I just always go with the default. I don't know why it ended up being so small, so sorry about that. Um, it's also on the Bible app. All the slides are word for word on there if that's helpful to you. Uh, Hopefully you can see it, even if it's a little small, but, you know, it is what it is. So, but verses 1 and 2 says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners 
were all drawing near to him, being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus, in telling all three of these parables, is speaking to a very eclectic crowd. On one hand, you have the Pharisees and the sinners, and on the uh, sorry, the, the tax collectors and the sinners. On the other hand, you have the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is one of those crowds that, like, if you were to walk up on it, you could tell at an instant who was belonged to which crowd. It's like if you went to a convention center or you were at a hotel and there was a couple of conventions going on nearby and there was like a banker's convention and a farmer's convention, you would know exactly who was there for what convention. You're just like, okay, just based on your mannerisms, based on how you're dressed, I have a guess on which party you belong to. And and not to belabor this point, but basically uh, the tax collectors and the sinners, these were social outcasts. These were people that had chosen to go their own way, kind of make their own paths, um, that kind of respectable society looked down upon. On the other hand, you had the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the people that, uh, from outside appearances, had their lives together, did everything right, um, were very devout in their religious expression. Um, for instance, we may, you know, we encourage kind of as believers, we think uh, devotional time, spending time in Scripture is a vital part of our walks with God. Uh, the, Pharisee in this, the Pharisees in this day and age would have had the first five books, the Torah, uh, memorized. So whatever your devotional life is, they're like varsity and you're like peewee football, probably. You know, uh, So they had it from outside perspective all together. But they're here. Um, the one hand, the social outcasts were coming near to Jesus to hear his message, to, to understand what he was saying to them. They were attracted to him. And the scribes and the Pharisees often kind of followed along, but what we see over and over again in the New Testament is they weren't there to actually listen to Jesus. They were there to talk about it, to gossip, to look, and grumble is the word here, saying, how can this guy, how can this man associate himself with these types of people? Um, And so we see this over and over again. And so Jesus, at this moment, kind of looks out on this crowd of diverse people that are there from diverse backgrounds and are there for differing reasons, And he launches into these parables. He says, there was a man who had 100 sheep and one was lost. There was a woman who had 10 coins and one was lost. And she went looking for it. And then we'll pick up um, the third parable in verse 11. It says this, And he said, being Jesus, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So let's pause just to, to be all on the same page here. So Jesus tells this story, right? He says there's a man with two sons, and the younger son uh, comes to his father and says, hey, can I, I want my inheritance. And I was thinking this week as I was preparing for this, so I'm going, um, me and my wife and our son are going up to Amarillo to spend time with my family this week, and I was thinking, how would this conversation go with my dad? If I were to look at him and be like, hey, I'm glad I'm here. Can you give me my inheritance? Like, that would be a very short trip, right? Because in that, there's not going to be much conversation after that because what is an inheritance? It's something you get when the person giving it passes away. 
And so essentially, in going to his father and asking this, this is an audacious request. Because we see he is saying, Father, I don't want to be associated with you. I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm out. I'm checking out of this family. I'm checking out of this relationship. But not only do I want to just go and do my own thing, I want your stuff still. So basically, he's saying, it would be better for me if you were to just drop dead right now. But since that's probably not going to happen, can we act like it does? You go ahead and give me the things that would be mine if you were dead, and then we can both go our own ways. Like, this is an incredibly offensive thing to ask the Father. It's a violation of any kind of social norm. It's a violation of any kind of familial norm or relationship. It is, I mean, if you just imagine, if you have a child or if you have a parent, what this would be like if this was what you were to say to them or if they were to say to you. Basically, hey, I don't want you, but please, I still want your stuff, so can we go ahead and do that? And the father, we don't get an insight into his emotional state here, but what Jesus says is he goes ahead and he does this. He divides up his property, he gives it to his son, and the son goes on his way. And this goes kind of like what we probably would think it goes when you don't have a whole lot of background. You, you don't know uh, what you're doing. You're kind of a rebellious one, and suddenly you come into a lot of money. He goes and he, he blows it on, the scripture says, reckless living. We don't know what that entailed, but we can probably guess drugs, alcohol, women, parties, uh, spending it as quick as he can. And then at the end of the day, he kind of runs out of funds. The, the well dries up on him. And at the exact same time that the well dries up, his circumstances change, so he's not only broke, suddenly food becomes very hard to come by and very expensive. So he goes in a moment from being young and rich, which is a good place to be, a fun place to be, to being poor and starving. His fortunes have entirely reversed. And so he does the only thing he can. He says, I'm going to go get whatever job I can get. And so he, he hires himself out to tend to pigs which in Jewish culture would be kind of the lowest of the low. So whatever it is in your mind, it's like, man, this would be the worst job I could possibly get. That's the equivalent of where he finds himself. He's not just tending to the pigs, he's actually jealous of them. Like he was like, man, if I could only eat as well as a pig could eat, which even us, was like that, I mean, I don't have a problem with pigs. I eat bacon all the time. I still don't want to eat what the bacon eats, you know? And so this is where he ends up. He is poor, he is starving, he is humiliated. His fortunes have entirely reversed. So we'll pick back up in, in verse 17. The story continues and it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So when the son hits rock bottom, when things can't be worse, Scripture says he comes to his senses. He comes to himself, and he thinks, I thought I had it bad. I thought that I knew where I was supposed to go. I thought I could call my own shots. I thought I could make a better life for myself. Look at where that's got me. 
And he turns back and thinks, man, when I thought I had it bad under this father that I said I wish was dead, um, now he realizes that his hired servants had more than enough bread to eat. And this isn't talking about just like his run-of-the-mill employees, like the kind of term hired servants here is akin or equivalent to what we think of as like a day laborer. So it's basically when you've got the most menial task that the father had to hire somebody out for, he would go and hire these guys for one day or for two days to do something that required no skill, just kind of, hey, go and do. And he paid them well enough. He was generous with them that they had more than enough to eat. He wasn't just a fair boss. He was a generous boss, um, let alone a father. And so this son goes, well, I've lost it. Like being a son is probably over for me because I told my dad I wished he was dead. Maybe I can go back and he's generous enough that I can catch on as one of these hired men and at least then I'll be able to eat. And so he kind of enacts this plan. He, He puts this speech together and he begins to go home. And the story continues that as he's reaching kind of the end of this journey, you know, he comes over the hill, he comes around the bend, whatever it is, that his father spots him while he was still a ways off and runs towards him, feels compassion and runs towards him. Like there's no mixed emotions. You know, again, if I said this to my dad, if I uh, heard this one day from my son, I can only imagine what a reunification would be like in kind of the emotional turmoil of being glad that they're back, but also like, hey, you've said some things that we need to work through, but we don't see that mixed emotion in this father. What's he do? He feels compassion and he immediately runs and he sprints and he embraces and he kisses. He welcomes his son back into his arms. And I can only imagine kind of this scene as the, the son who was hungry and dirty and tired even before he started this journey is now completing it from a faraway land, just able to put one foot barely in front of the other And on the other hand, his father sprinting up towards him and with all the grime and with all the nastiness and with all uh, the dirt and filth, just embracing him and kissing him and welcoming him back. And then I I love this interaction that comes next because you have the the son who's been rehearsing this speech probably all the way home, just like you would if you've got uh, an interview or if you've got kind of a a big conversation coming up. You know how you play, well, I'm going to say this, I'm going to do these different things. Uh, He's thinking about this all the way home. What will I do? What will I say? How will this go? All the different ways it can play out. And so he pulls out his note cards to give the speech, right? He says, you know, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. You know, uh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But we don't see the father like we would expect to, to react to the speech. He's not sitting there agreeing with the son, right? He's not going, yeah, you did. You screwed up. We need to have a talk about that later. Yeah, you're right, you know. He's also not minimizing what this, the son is saying. He's not saying, you know, it's, it's okay. It really wasn't that bad. I mean, it was kind of rude, but I'm over it. Uh, the interesting thing about this interaction is the father doesn't seem to be paying attention to the speech at all. Like, he is so overwhelmed with emotion. If you read this, he runs away from the house and goes and he embraces his son. And the next thing we see about him is he's speaking to servants, which are probably back at the house. So in my mind, I imagine him being so overcome that he embraces, he kisses the son, and then his first reaction is to sprint back up towards the house to get a party ready to go. He says, bring a robe, bring a ring, bring a ribeye. Like, it's time to throw this lavish party. We have a single moment, the single circumstances that two characters are having radically different experiences and responses to what is going on. 
the son has come back into the situation bringing with him guilt and shame, thinking, I have done so much wrong, and I'm not even worthy to be a son in this household anymore. Maybe I can be a servant. And the father is experiencing two things, but it seems to be joy. My son is home. And celebration. Bring out the best. It's time to party. And so often, I think, just kind of as an aside, our tendency, if we've wandered away from a time from our faith, if we've made some mistakes, either just one that has been a really bad one or made a series of them that took us a place that we never thought we would go, that we come back from that, we maybe come to church and kind of sit here and and sing the songs that are on the screen or go through the motions and listen um, and, and do these things. But in the back of our mind, we wonder if we should really even be here. Like, what does God think about me being here? But if we take Jesus at his word here about the Heavenly Father's response, the Heavenly Father's character, that's not what he thinks at all. What he looks at us and sees and feels is that he's overjoyed that a child, that a son or a daughter has come back. He's home. She's home. This is cause for celebration. And so again, if, I don't know if that's you, but if it is you, in the back of your mind that thought lingers, it's, I would just ask, hear the plea of Jesus in this moment. That sweet child, do you not know the heart the Heavenly Father. Can't you see the joy in his eyes and the smile on his face? The weight that maybe you brought in here on your shoulders was dealt with long ago at Calvary. It is time to set it down. But the the story doesn't end there. It goes on. Um, There's one more act to consider. Picking up in verse 25, we read this. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come home, and the father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older son, was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the last character that was uh, sort of introduced at the beginning, but we don't see him until now, was the elder brother, right? The man had two sons, and we've just been focusing on the younger brother and what he's done. But the final piece is how this elder brother reacts to all that has transpired. And so while this is going on, while this reunion, while the the planning, while this celebration begins, the elder brother appears to be uh, where he always is. He's out in the field, tending to the family business, doing what he's supposed to be doing as the good son. And at the end of a day, probably a long, hard day, uh, he's walking towards the house, and as he draw near, draws near, he begins to hear the sounds of a celebration. You know, the text actually reads that he hears uh, music and he hears dancing, which I've been to a lot of party. I've heard a lot of music coming out of a house. I don't often hear dancing from inside the party, right? Like, that's next level. That's like river dance going on inside of this thing. People are going nuts, And so as many of us probably do, if you're walking into a social situation in which you don't really know 
what's going on, you would call somebody and say, hey, what am I about to get myself into here? So he calls a servant over, and he gets this story recounted to him that, hey, your, your brother returns, so your dad um, is throwing this celebration. And he becomes furious, becomes angry. He, he says, I'm, I'm not going to go out, or I'm not going to go in. So instead of him going in, his father comes out to him. His father searches him out and entreats him or pleads with him to come in. And the son's response is telling. And the older son says this, I've done everything right and you've never thrown me a party half this good. And this son of yours that did everything wrong comes in and you do this for him? And the father responds, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Everything I have is open to you. I've never withheld anything from you, but it's good to celebrate today because your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. And that's where the story ends, right? Like the, the curtain drops on this moment of the parable that Jesus is telling. And in some respects, this parable is just like the previous two that Trent talked about a few weeks ago. Something was lost, and then it's found, and there's a celebration. But it's different because it doesn't end. The last two ended in the celebration. This one ends outside. This one ends with the father going out and inviting someone to come in to the celebration. The father and son, at the end of the story, are just looking at each other. And this invitation to come inside hangs in the air between them. That's the end. But what is the point of this? Like, how do we interpret this? How do we apply this? What do we understand that Jesus is trying to tell us? Um... Well, clearly, uh, the Father represents, just like in the former two, the Father represents God, God's character, God's heart, God's actions, who he is. And growing up, um, you know, I kind of always had the idea that maybe some of you guys had that the younger brother is the person that goes their own way, that messes up, makes a mess of their life, and then comes back to Jesus and repents. And the older brother is basically the church curmudgeon that kind of turns up their nose and like, oh, those people, sinners coming into my church and making it all messy. Um, but I think there's some validity to that, that it's a reminder that those of us that have been saved and have been saved for a long time sometimes forget that God saved us out of something. We need to remember that um, we too are sinners saved by grace. Uh, there's a quote by a guy named John Bradford. Uh, I think he lived in the 1500s, but he was reported to have seen a, um, he was a pastor, uh, train of prisoners going by um, to execution. And he just remarked that there but for the grace of God go I. And that often is us. If it wasn't for the grace of God, who knows where we would be and what would end up. But just stopping there that it's sinners and kind of judgmental church people doesn't quite encapsulate the full weight of what Jesus is trying to say. And the person that kind of helped me understand this, I think, was a guy named Tim Keller. He's a pastor or was a pastor in New York. He's written a bunch of books um, he's retired now, but I think he's still writing. Some of you guys may have read some of the, the things he'd done or, or heard sermons from him. Uh, but he, he says there's more going on here. See, the, the whole chapter is really building in intensity. The first parable, there was a man with 100 sheep, and he had lost one of them. Uh, the second parable, there was a woman with 10 coins, and she had lost one of them. And finally, we get to this parable, and Keller makes the point, I think he's right, he says there was a man with two sons, and it wasn't one that was lost but both were lost. See, how do, we, how do we see this? Well, one, there's the original context, uh, his audience. Who's Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to two groups, and both of them um, are represented in the parables. The, sinner, uh, the sinners and the tax collectors were the younger son that kind of went their own way. The scribes and the Pharisees were the elder son that 
stayed in the home, did all the right things. But uh, if, if you read the New Testament, if you know the stories, were not friends of Jesus. These were the guys that ended up killing him. They were his enemies, despite the religious trappings that they clothed themselves in. But I think we also see it because of how Jesus goes about telling this story. These two sons, both of them were completely different in the choices they made, where they lived, the lives they lived. But ultimately, what Jesus helps us to understand or how he crafts the story is that what we get to see in this last interaction is that their hearts are in the exact same place. See, at the beginning, what is the younger son after? He says to his father, God, I don't want you, Father, I don't want a relationship with you. I just want your stuff. I want my inheritance. And then here at the end of the day, despite the fact that he's going through the motions, despite he's trying to be the good son, what do we see that the younger or the elder son is angry about? He's angry because he feels like the father is being unjust in how he uses his stuff. He is not after the heart of his father. He's not akin to the character of his father. He's not seeking for the joy of his father. He's angry because he doesn't like how God's or how his father is using these things. He says, I did everything your way. I did everything you asked. I clocked in early. I clocked out late. I did everything right. You've never shown any kindness or generosity to me. But this screw-up shows back up and you do this for him. And in that moment, what becomes clear in the story is the older brother was ultimately after his father's stuff, just like the younger brother was. Everything he was doing, his strict obedience, in his mind was his way of best positioning himself to ultimately get what he most wanted, just like the younger son. See, and this is what Keller points out so well, um, is that there are multiple ways to be far from God. Like we can... Some of us are saying, I'm going to define my own right and wrong. I'm going to make my own choices. I'm going to go my own way because I think that's the best way to get what I want out of life. And some others say, hey, you know what? I'm going to do the things right. I'm going to be the good kid. I'm going to uh, conform to society's expectations. I'm going to conform to the church's expectations. But ultimately, if I'm really honest, at the depths of my heart, what I'm really after is that this is the way to get what I most want out of life. Both are just different strategies trying to get to the same end. And this is what uh, we come into this world doing. And the father responds to both patiently, lovingly. He says to the son, you've always been with me. All that I own is yours, but it is right to celebrate because one of my lost sons has been found. And if this is a celebration for one of them being found, imagine what it would be like if both come in. According to the Bible, this is how we all come into this world that we may act differently, that we may chase our own ends in ways that look differently. But ultimately, we're all out for ourselves, that we were created to love God and love others. That should be what we are about most naturally. But naturally, instead, we say, I'm about me, and I will use and uh, try and accomplish my own goals through whatever means. But ultimately, I want what I want, and I'm going to chase that to the end and try and achieve that. And that's what the scripture calls is sin. And says that's how we come into this world. That that's our natural disposition. And it's easy for us to look at the one that says, I'm going to define right and wrong for myself and go, yeah, that person is clearly chasing their own ends. But for those of us that stay close to church, the ones that kind of are around religion a lot, sometimes it takes a moment that lays our hearts bare that we only see it in the elder son when God, when his father does not do what he thinks 
God should do, when he feels God has been unjust, when he says, he looks at his father and says, God, I did everything right. You owe me better than this. And that's the moment you know that he's not actually after his father's own heart. And that's how we come into this world. Keller retirement like this. He says, some of us are by nature religious and some of us are by nature irreligious, but we are both pursuing what we most want in this life. And we need something to happen to change us, to begin to pursue God and pursue who we should, were created to be and should be. But fortunately for us, our Heavenly Father has a seeking and searching heart. And fortunately for us, there's a third son in the story. Like a, a son that's in the background, a son that's telling this story. See, Jesus, God's son, is the son that does reflect the heart of the Father. And instead of staying back while we go our own way, the Father sends him and he comes, he puts on flesh and dwells among us. That he lived the life that we don't live, that we couldn't live. And then when the time comes, he pays the punishment for our sins. That he sacrifices not a fatted calf, but he sacrifices himself on our behalf in order to make a way back to God. And in doing so, the Bible says that this has made a way for us to be right with God. And the book of Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. What joy was that? It was the joy, Paul says in Romans, to make us co-heirs with Christ. That he didn't begrudge us coming and being adopted into the family, but he welcomed it. He was the one who made a way. So as I sat this week kind of thinking, okay, if this is the passage um, and this is what I think Jesus is trying to say in this, how do we apply this? Like, what do we walk out of here with? And I sat with that question for a while, and then I kind of realized it was a funny question in some regards, that the whole point of the passage is that God seeks us out and extends an invitation. And it's not about what we do, it's about how we respond to the invitation. And so I think that's the application, is to hear and respond this invitation that is extended by God and is extended by Jesus, God's Son. And if we've never truly responded to him in faith, whether we've done everything wrong and it's clear to everyone and clear to ourselves, this is not working out for me, I need something different, hear the call of Jesus. Or if we've done everything right, but at the end of the day, we kind of know, you know what, I'm doing this just for my own good. Hear the call of Jesus to come in to the celebration. God is searching for you, calling to you. Won't you come home? And if you have put your faith in Jesus in the past, but have maybe taken some terms, turns that you didn't intend to, things haven't gone the way you wanted to, you found yourself in a position that uh, you shouldn't be in, um, and you, you're here wondering, man, is there still a place for me at God's table? Like just, just know that God hasn't changed the locks on you. Your key still works. And hear the invitation to come in. You are his son and daughter. Respond and begin to follow him again. And if we're here and, and we would say, you know what, I'm, I'm trying to follow, not perfectly, but genuinely, I'm, I'm seeking to follow after God. I'm after Christ. Then I think the call, the, the invitation should remind us that we need to be people that have the same heart as our Heavenly Father. And we need to be people that have the same heart as our Lord Jesus. 
And so as we enter into as a church and we continue to go through this who's your one uh, initiative and try and think through, okay, what does that look like in my sphere? Consider, are we the people, are we, am I a person that extends this, that goes out and I'm actively looking, man, this is who God is, this is what God has done for me, so who can I invite into this celebration? Because that is what God has sent us into this world to be about. Do I have the same heart? May we pray daily that our hearts beat more and more in line with his. And so we'll close just with the, the last line, the invitation that Jesus says here. He says that it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Won't you come in and bring everyone you can find along with you? Let's pray.